Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. A podcast created for a first responder by a first responder. If you are not a first responder, you still are welcome. This podcast is aimed directly at trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is complex and often misunderstood. Our brave men and women who serve our communities often end up with behavioral and psychological issues as a result of experienced trauma from their careers. My goal is to share what I know, my personal experience with PTSD as a retired police officer, and continue to advocate for mental health while providing support to those still in their careers. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical help, and I strongly suggest if you are in fact suffering, you seek out professional medical advice. Please join me on this episode as I continue to expose the reality of PTSD challenges. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to 1033. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Mark Bouchard. Mark comes to us with over 15 years of policing experience. He started out in Delta Police at first, but he's now an RCMP officer in Williams Lake. Mark, it's an incredible honor to have you on the show today. I know you're going to do this topic wonders. You've already connected with me. You're already talking about PTSD. And I know where your experience is at, what you've experienced. Not only that, but the healing journey that you've gotten yourself onto and the things that you've learned. And I'm really excited for you to share with us your perspective into what life is like for a first responder. So first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Nathan. Uh, I love the show, listen to it every week, and I'm super excited to be here. You're too kind, my friend. I would have totally accepted you if you said you hadn't listened to any of these shows. <laughs> and that's the approach I take with podcasting is my work is here, just connecting with people, helping them now get their stories out because season one was my story. But now we're going into season two. And we already have one episode out right now at the moment, and we're recording you. Your episode will come out a little bit later, but your story, let's start with your story. Where, where does it begin? Oh, wow. I got hired uh, with the Delta Police in uh, 2007. I spent a bit of time with a knee injury, um, hit the road for my version of like RFT or Block 2 uh, right at the end of 2008, and then graduated 2009. Um did about five or so years on patrol. I, I love patrol work. It's really enjoyable. Um, I, I love getting to interact with people, help people. And um, in the start of 2014, I applied for the, well, I started on the emergency response team in January and did almost six years on the ERT team, um, which has been awesome. Like anyone who, I, I talked to a lot of people who are interested in ERT work and I tell everybody it's one of the best things I've ever done. I never even meant to be on ERT. Like many people, you know, in their police applications, they want to do ERT and canine and major crime or homicide or I hit. And I showed up for my chief's interview and told them I wanted to be a school liaison officer because I really like coaching and teaching and helping kids and somehow wandered my way onto an ERT team. Um, but the, like one of the best things about policing is that the intensity of the experience and the bond that you make with people, you certainly get a lot of it on patrol on general duty and uh with ERT you go to some really intense stuff and you you make some best friends for life and that's one of the that's been one of my favorite parts you know I had to leave the emergency response team in 2019 in September I timed out so I was going back to I went back to patrol in Delta 
And when you leave something like that, you really miss what you had. Um, and ultimately, I, I applied to the RCMP. That was my own, my way to get back into the ERT program, back into being a medic. And um, well, my wife's with the RCMP and works in Williams Lake. So it meant I could be home every day with my family, whereas I'd been commuting for a few years. Um, and it's just a lot of time away. You know, and now that we, we have a young family, it's you need to be home every day and have that be your priority. Absolutely. And you yourself have much going on right now as well. I believe your wife is very pregnant at the final stages of pregnancy and you're about to welcome your second child into the world. Yeah, thanks. I know we're in a a similar position. You said your wife is also uh, about to give birth. It's really exciting. You know, having, uh, having a son is is one of the best things I've ever done. It's, it's amazing. It's can be super challenging, but it's also so rewarding. And, um, I feel very fortunate to uh, to do it again. One of the interesting things too, I know I make this comment all the time. I always say policing is so easy compared to parenting. The challenges that exist in parenting run deep. But again, this isn't a podcast about parenting struggles. We're here to talk about some of the things that are happening in policing. So as you were kind of talking there, uh, it did break up just slightly, Mark. Um, so I just want to go over kind of your your story and how it begins. You joined in Delta. Uh, and then I think where it broke up was we lost part of the interaction here, or the connection where you later end up in the RCMP or in ERT. Now I caught a tail end of you might have been in delta ERT as well is that true can you fill in the gap there again how you go from basically being hired to then getting to delta ERT and then rcmp yeah so did five years on patrol in delta and then applied to the emergency response team which is an integrated team so delta had two spots at the time on a regional team in the lower mainland uh my term was only three years i eventually stayed well in excess of five getting close to six years and then you time out someone else's chance, someone else graduated. And, uh, you know, in the municipal world, you often cycle back to patrol. That's pretty normal for most positions. And they want you back. They want you to bring that experience to either field train or act or, you know, to help share that knowledge. I felt very fortunate that I got to do that. I actually was able to field train another recruit when I went back to general duty. And I loved it. Like, like with you know, some of the recruits, you become lifelong friends, because same thing, you go through a lot of stuff together. And uh, again, that's the best part of the job. So after going to the RCMP, then I got back onto the emergency response team, this time in the North District. So I got hired with the RCMP in uh, late 2020, started on the emergency response team in early 2021. And I've been back on that team. Um, Still in. Your your ability to teach and give back is already showing up uh, in this as you reflect on this part of the story and your ability to grow with the job and then come back into positions and help others. And I applaud you for that. It's something you talk about too earlier on about how you're very passionate about teaching and helping others grow. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that make up the the service men and women is that not only do they have these passions to serve their communities, but they want to see people succeed as well. And for you, that's very evident very early on in your career. Now, if you're to reflect on the type of person that you were maybe emotionally or morally prior to joining the police, what would you, how would you characterize yourself or, or how would you describe who you are? And what I'm trying to do is just kind of set a, a tone of, you know, the person that 
was Mark Bouchard prior to maybe going down the path of having all of these traumatic things happen to you and you now eventually get into the world of PTSD? Sure. Uh, you know, I think I had a really uh, positive upbringing. I, um, you know, I have great parents. I have a great family life, had a lot of stability. My parents, you know, they've lived in the same house. They still do since before I was born. Um, a lot of support. I, I grew up with a big sports background, so I played a lot of hockey. So I played on some really uh, good teams in minor hockey and then played five years of junior hockey played a little bit of uh, college when I was at UBC, just a handful of games, and then played a year in Europe. So hockey kind of was my life or was a huge part of my focus, which then transitioned after that over into, um, into policing. Um, I think I was a bit naive to what policing was. Like, I've, you know, even as someone who sat in on a bunch of um, interviews, like for police applicants, I was helping with in recruiting for a little bit with Delta. And everyone comes in and says, we, I want to help people, which is what I thought. And, and ultimately, it is what we do, but it's very different than you think, because I wasn't used to dealing with drug addicts. I wasn't used to dealing with homelessness or dealing with death and pain and suffering. Like, no one really teaches you how to get ready for those things. And they can hit you like a ton of bricks, right? Like, the, I've been there for many people's first next of kin notification, you know, where they have to tell someone their loved one's passed away. And the kind of stress that you see, like you see the physical manifestations of stress when someone's kind of like scratching their wrist and playing with their watch and like their, their stress is coursing through their body and they don't know what to do with it. And it's really hard. And then you get this wide variety of reactions from the person you're telling. I've seen anything from stoic to just falling down on the ground to screaming to wanting to fight you like and any you have no idea what that reaction is going to be. And it's really hard, you know to even do the NOKs that aren't the hardest ones. Whereas when you start adding in the level of challenge of it's a, it's a child or it's a, the child's now a, um, an orphan or like some of the ones I, I have seen, oh man, like it's, you see some extreme of the human experience. And I think because of that empathy and connection that we have, we carry a piece of that often and we can learn how to, to deal with it. Like I didn't know, and I carried a lot of that pain for a lot of years and I've since learned how to handle some of those things differently. Um, you, you mentioned even about kind of like the field training aspect. Well, we had one, I, I had a, a recruit when I went back to, to general duty in 2019 and we had to do an NOK where, you know, these kids were orphans now, like they had recently lost their mom and now their dad had just died and we had to go tell them and, and hearing some of the things that they say, some of the questions they ask, it's really hard. And after we were done, um, you know, my, my friend and I, we, I just told my boss, like, we're not available for calls right now. And we went and sat down, we grabbed a pizza and we just talked and talked about, you know, emotional pain and about how to process it and how to understand it and what it is. And I think it's really important that we share some of those kind of lessons so that like, like I did, I, I had an, a bad NOK when I was a couple months onto the job. And for years, I couldn't even think about it without breaking down crying. Every time I drove by the scene, it would bother you. Um, I certainly couldn't talk about it for years. And eventually I learned how to let go of some of it. You know, for me, it was things like journaling, where you take that negative emotion and you, you, you give it a voice, but you also 
it lets you let go of some of it. So there's still sad experiences. Like they're not, they're not things I think fondly of, but I don't carry the emotional load on them that I did. And I did for many years. And I think we often expect that we're supposed to just bury it down. No, I have to be tough. I'm a cop. I can't have feelings or I'm a man. You know, I can't cry. Like it's all bullshit. Really? You're a person. So yes, in the moment, you're going to have to overcome some feelings. And if there's a a shooter or there's some dangerous thing, you got to deal with it. And you're not going to have a moment to sit down and journal or to sit down and tell someone how you feel. But after you're done is the time to find a way to process that in a healthy way. So it doesn't continue to negatively impact you for the rest of your life. And that's what was happening to me for many years. And I honestly, they don't hit me the same way that they used to. And I hope that we can share more of that message. I think it's part of the message that you share here, which is so valuable. And I would love to see it be something that's brought into basic police training, like bring in more of psychology so that we can teach people how to handle these things in a, in a healthier way and have better long-term outcomes. One of the things that you nailed on the head was this approach to policing is we're taking very compassionate and empathetic civilians and we're getting them ready for policing. And a large portion of the people that I'm talking to through this project, a lot of them look back on their journey and say, yes, I was very naive. I didn't realize how deep policing was going to go. Could that be said for other areas of the first responder world, fire, nurses, paramedics, corrections, all of that. I'm sure, absolutely. We all do, and we sign up for this this big moment, this call to serve our community. And I think a large portion of us are never really ready for what we experience on the job. We think it's going to be one thing, and what we end up experiencing is totally different. Like you said, I wasn't ready to go out and deal with the homeless population or drug addiction or seeing the the full spectrum of human responses when police officers come to the door and they have certain interactions with them because we we interact with people in so many different ways. So for you, noticing that you are this person in that moment prior to becoming a police officer, and now you're starting to go through some of the trauma, how were, how were those experiences landing on you then? Because now you talk about it, you're very open about the processing and the talking, and you've learned how to go through the emotional feelings that happened from those harder calls. But back then, I'm assuming you didn't have that knowledge then were you more geared towards suppression or numbing out? How were you dealing with some of those difficult calls in the beginning? Um, well, I think for context, there's a lack of understanding what's happening. So like that first NOK, I remember, you know, we stayed late. So uh, I went home, I was living with my parents at the time. And so was my girlfriend and they all got up and had breakfast and I didn't say a word, like I couldn't talk. If I said anything, I would have broke down crying. And they all just had this conversation around me without realizing that like I'm all messed up and I, no one knows. Right. And you're just, you're feeling this really intense emotional pain that was someone else's pain and you've carried some of it, but I didn't understand it. I thought ahead of that call that I would just take off my police hat and go home and put on my regular hat and pretend nothing happened. I would have had no idea that I was carrying that pain with me let alone that I would carry it for years, not just for the day. 
I remember I had another night shift the following night. I went back to work. I ran into one of my friends who was also on his block too. So for Mounties, that'd be like your RFT. And uh, we started talking about that call. And he said to me, like, what's the matter? Like, you, you seem like you're getting choked up. Like, what's wrong with you? And like, there just there was such a lack of understanding, both on his part and on mine. Like, nothing against him. We're, we're still friends. Like, um, it's just, we don't know what's happening. And it's partially through the living that experience that you learn. Um, there's obviously a ton of great research that you can also learn, like following different psychologists, reading their books, um, listening to them speak has really helped me to learn it. But I guess the context for me of experiencing these things in the moment was I did not understand what was happening. And yeah, my answer was to just try and suppress things, pretend it's not there, you know, and hope that it just goes away. I think <laughs> the best analogy is like, you have an overflowing garbage can and you just, I'm going to push this garbage down deeper. I'm going to make room for some more. And eventually you run out of an ability to push it down any further. There's too much in there and it, it starts to, there's consequences in your life, right? It impacts your mood. It impacts how you interact with your loved ones, with your family. Um, and we need to learn how to, how to deal with it in a healthy way. So I don't think I had a healthy way of coping. Um, yeah, I think my answer was just to basically like judge myself. What's wrong with you? You're being weak. Stop being weak. And you're you're a human first and a cop second. So that's not a reality. And yes, you'll suppress emotions in the moment. 100%, like we all have to. That's a part of the job, any of these high stress positions. But then find a way after to let go of them. Or process them. And I love too how you can reflect on the realistic part of your journey where you can totally recognize that in the beginning, it wasn't always, you know, this way for Mark Bouchard. And that's part of the journey. And there's no shame in that whatsoever. This is how we learn how to deal with the complex components of first responder work. Some of those very difficult calls can totally rock you. And that was my experience too. In the beginning, the very first call I went to, and I talk about this on season one, so I won't bore you with the details but going to a very difficult call I was like whoa that feeling was too big so I just shoved that stuff down and was like go away not right now now mind you the other hard complex part to this is a lot of times in an organization a policing organization we're going through this this phase and I think we have been for quite a, quite some time now of manpower issues so you take your police officer who's going to a call that might be quite heavy after they clear from that call, the very important processing time that they may need to get through some of those harder emotions that they experienced, they may actually not be able to get that in that moment because they're now getting called to go to the next one and the next one and the next one. So now all of a sudden you're trying to cope by saying, yes, I have to suppress so that I can continue to go to these calls. And now all of a sudden over the course of a 10 hour shift or a 12 hour shift, you've gone to eight or 12 really emotionally charged calls that could be all trauma filled and you go home and you're like, what did I just experience? So how do I even begin to unwind this ball of yarn? Was that also something that you experienced? Yeah, I'd say my experience in Delta versus the RCMP was a little bit different. I think Delta is fortunate that they, I believe have a little bit more officers per capita and per, per call. So like I always felt smoking busy in Delta, but you know, coming to the RCMP and seeing what 
you know, contract policing and GD level policing, like there are uh, an amazing amount of people who just find a way to get it done. Uh, even when we don't have, you know, at times a great amount of resources. And there's times when I have friends, you know, in the watchcom role phone me like, Hey, we're, you know, we're at half a minimums. Like, can you come help? And they struggle to get someone to come help. And that's a reality of that position. I, I certainly would agree with you that we often like you just overloaded with work and stress at times. And I mean, you'll get different cultures and different work environments, depending where you work. I've had other friends when they message me and say, I haven't had a call in four days. So like we just have very different environments and very different realities of what our work can be. There are certainly some places that are extremely busy. And I think that can make it even more challenging when, as you said, it's always on to the next one. And I, I have talked to, you know, numerous people who have told me about very major critical incidents and no chance to recover. Like as soon as you're done that call, even though it's massive, whether it's, you know, there's like an officer involved shooting, whether there's fatalities, there's a, a lot of trauma that's really impacting you. Hey, we don't have time for that right now. You got to get on to that next one. And I think when we do that and we do that for too long, it can lead to burnout and it can lead to some problems. I know for me, I've been on a team where we, I, we often struggled to get enough people to the calls. I ultimately worked like every day for a month. I don't think I got under 90 hours a week and it impacted me. Like you're not seeing your friends. You're not having any of that time to de-stress. You're always at on high alert and you just wear out from it. It's, it's not good for us. And I've had to learn to say no sometimes, even though it's hard, even though everything's important, that next call is always important, but sometimes you need to take care of yourself as well. And, and I mean, I ended up off work for probably two months and they had to find a way without me. And it's like that for some of our units. So there are times we need to have the self-recognition of what we need and to take some of that time off and do things with our family or our friends or things that are good for us and our mental health so that we can recharge and so that we can be there in the long run to help more with the next one. But it, it does mean you can't, you can't solve everything. Like that's, that's just a reality that we have to accept. Very true. Very, very true. Sometimes it gets very difficult in the journey to ensure that you're still refilling or recharging your own battery because those organizational pressures are literally knocking on your door daily, if not hourly. Like you said, now that you're out in a northern community, you are it, right? So when they're below minimums and they're reaching out to you, you feel that pressure because you know that, you know, if you're sitting at home just trying to decompress or rest from work and your brothers and sisters are in the trenches fighting, you feel horrible by saying no, but you also have to learn that you have to say no because you have to be able to show up to your next shift healthy and ready to go. And it's such a, such a complex position to be in as a police officer. Now, I'm not going to talk about that just yet. I want to kind of go back a little bit further back into kind of when you started to notice the changes in yourself. You may not have recognized at that point that PTSD was now starting to become a part of your world. But as you're talking about some of those issues that you're facing in those moments, in the connection that now is suffering with the family what kind of person were you becoming as the trauma was starting to pile up 
Wow, that's an interesting question. I would say I first started to see it after that that first NOK a couple months into the job, where I knew that it was impacting me, but I didn't I didn't really understand it. Um, Delta has a, a SISM team, so Critical Incident Stress Management, I believe is what it stands for. But basically, they'll come talk to you after like major incidents, and you know, offer you some coping strategies and just talk a bit about what's going on. And I remember someone came to talk to me. And asked, hey, that's a tough call. How are you doing? And fine. I'm like, I'm not willing. Uh, you know, in my mind, I knew I was not fine. Like sitting there in that talk, I 100% had that thought. And I also had the thought, there's no way I'm going to tell you that. And I think within our organizations, we need to work on the organizational culture to make it safe to be honest about those feelings of how you feel so that you can actually manage and process and handle them. Whereas Nothing against the person who came to talk to me. It wasn't a them thing. It was my perception. It was my self-stigma that I was going, what's wrong with me? Like, you can't hack it. Something's wrong with you. You know, that's my internal dialogue. And I think if we had people that, you know, came and talked to the people in, in training, to talk to the recruits and people that they respect and look up to and who are in some of these positions that they want to get into one day, who talk to them about it, who normalize it. And not just for an awareness, but also for what to do about it. Like it's one thing to say, oh, here's this problem. But it's a way different situation to say, hey, here's a problem and here's a bit of a solution towards it. I think that goes a long way. So that that bothered me for years. And then you just start adding on new levels is kind of the way I would describe it. I don't think I was really aware of most of it at the time. Um, there was another call probably about two years later where a guy pointed an imi- imitation firearm at me and I effectively should have, you know, used lethal force and I didn't. Uh, that one, man, that hit me hard. And I, like, I knew. So even after that call, like the kind of adrenaline dump that you get and the kind of like just stress hormone happening, um, I ended up telling my boss, I'm like, I'm, I'm not okay right now. Like I'm not ready to take another call. Um, you know, we had paperwork to write from that and statements and whatnot. And effectively I just told him like, I need to go burn some of this off. So I ended up going into the gym late night, you know, middle of the night and burn some of the stress off or tried to, but I was really affected. And I remember, uh, after that call, I went home and my girlfriend had been staying over at my place that night. And I saw her that morning. I just walked in the door and she looked at me. She's like, oh my God, what's wrong? What happened? Like, I didn't say a word. I didn't text her. She didn't know anything about it. But I think the people around us know us and can just, whether they can see, whether they can hear what we're saying, it's the little mannerisms that we have. Um, And I think it was pretty clear that I was affected. And I remember going back into work the next night where we did a debrief to talk about it. And I was so worried about that my teammates wouldn't trust me like it was the the stigma on myself. It was like shame and guilt. You know, there was a less lethal operator there. One of the, my friends who had a taser out and, you know, I exposed not only myself, but him to danger. If that had been a real gun, if that person had shot him. Um, but I didn't understand the resistance to using lethal force, which is such an important topic. Like, you know, you go through training and they teach you how to pull a trigger on a gun in a range, usually standing in a little cubicle. And maybe you take it to step six inches to your right. That's, you know, you know, your movement after. But 
we don't really prepare you for the psychology of lethal force and lethal force decisions. And it's not just the ones where you actually do get shot at or do shoot someone. I've talked to members lots of times where, you know, there's a suicide by cop or they almost have to shoot someone. Or I've talked to numerous members where they're half a trigger pull away from using lethal force and those moments impact them because, you know, we do have this really natural resistance to using, using lethal force. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dave Grossman talks about it extensively in his first book on killing. That's the, the primary takeaway for me is how powerful our resistance is. And throughout history, most people, do, you know, documented throughout a bunch of different examples he gives in wars, are not willing or able to use lethal force. Even when your life's on the line, that resistance is still so powerful that we won't overcome it. And he gives examples even in the animal kingdom. There are animals that would be considered very dangerous predators, but when they fight with each other, many of them won't use lethal force on each other. So the examples he gives are like piranhas who fight with their tails instead of using their teeth when they fight each other. The rattlesnakes, they'll wrestle with each other. Again, they don't use their teeth. Um, I know, I think what it is, is it's, it's a part of our biology that goes back millions of years that how hard it is. And even for many of us that overcome that resistance to using lethal force, it also comes with a psychological cost. And again, some people don't feel bad after, and they even wonder what's, what's wrong with me? Why don't I feel bad? And there's nothing wrong with you. Whatever your reaction is, is totally okay. Um, But for some people, there is an emotional pain with using lethal force. And I felt a lot of guilt and shame for letting my teammate down and for exposing us to danger. And I was talking to a psychologist one day and he said to me, he's like, so let me get this straight. You're really upset that you didn't shoot someone. And I had this realization that if I shot this person, I probably would have been in this psychologist's office talking to him, being upset that I had shot someone because he was effectively telling me with his question that that's normal. That's common. I shouldn't say normal. That is a common experience for many officers. And I went, oh, like, it's not that, you know, you've done something wrong and that's why you're upset. You're, you're in a position where that's a really hard spot and you're going to have, you know, you might have emotional impacts either way. So that made me really want to learn a lot more about the topics, which brought me into reading a bunch of these books. And it's part of why, you know, I've been writing my book and why I've made my website and put a bunch of book summaries on there, like a book like On Killing. I, I wrote it on my website with a little brief overview where you can get a summary of it in, you know, 500 or 1,000 words, whatever it is. And it's not meant to replace the book. It's meant to just, like, you should get this in training. If you're a police officer, this is a book that you should be exposed to in training. You just covered an incredible amount of ground in a fairly short time here. So I'm going to, I was just making notes while you were talking, Mark, because there, there were so many things that you brought up that were just so much value add to the conversation. Now I'm going to chase the shiny penny here first and be that guy who's just like, you know, squirrel. So we're actually going to talk about the prana because I've never heard the concept of the prana. Why are the pranas still around? Well, the pranas are still around because yeah, they fight each other with their tails and not their teeth. So they're not killing each other. Now, that is the power of evolution. So could you argue that, you know, these piranhas, that there were piranhas before 
in the past that did actually fight each other and use their teeth. There probably was those kind of piranhas, but they kill each other off and then now they're no longer in the the ones that exist now continue to go on and breed and and create these next generation piranhas and we're no different. And I have to totally agree with you in the bigger sense of we as humans were compassionate. Uh, let's hope we're compassionate. And in order to do harm to someone else or yourself, you have to be able to work through that compassion to do that. And it's very complex. And I think a lot of questions that get asked to people when they join policing is, are you ready to take a life? And we all say, yes, we are thinking that, okay, this is important. We need to say yes so that we can get into the job. The very real component to that is, though, is that no one is ready to take a life. We think we might be ready because we've never experienced that. But I, too, later on as a police officer, having had had the experience of being asked prior to becoming, are you ready to take a life? I said yes, and I thought I was. Now, when I was thrust into a few situations where I had to draw my gun and I was confronted now in situations where there was a male with a knife and my, my finger was on the trigger and I was ready to pull it. I was at that last stage where just a little bit more force and all of a sudden, boom, we're now going into that bullets now being sent. So I was literally at the cusp where I could have shot, but didn't. And having that compassion in that moment, I walked away from that situation much like yourself, rocked. I never thought that, you know, being in a situation where you were now forced to think about taking someone's life and not, you're now going back to the office and you, you are wrecked emotionally. Like you, you just went through something very, very traumatic. Now, much like yourself, the deep realization of this event comes into play of, okay, I'm, I'm going to have an impact to, or sorry, there is going to be an impact to me, regardless of whether or not I shoot or don't shoot. It's just going to look slightly different. So you have to learn how to walk through these experiences and they can be incredibly difficult. So the piranha Example, I mean, I love that. I absolutely love that example. And I wanted to come back to that because I think a lot of us think that we can easily take a life. And for the most part, we're not designed to do that unless you're narcissistic or a sociopath, or you just lack that compassionate range for others, right? It may be easier for you then, but still, uh, we're going to dive back into, into your story too, at the same time. One of the things you talked about also was being approached by someone else and them saying, Mark, are you fine? And you said, yes, I'm fine. A large portion, I would say 100% of this are going to go through this point in our careers where we're, we're going to be asked by someone else up here, are you fine? And we are going to lie through our teeth and we are going to tell them that we are fine when we fully know that we are not but the reasons behind that, there's no shame in that. We have to only also dive into a conversation about why that takes place. And that's kind of where I want to come back to first before we continue to flush through a few more points here of what you just brought up. For you, I wanted to build on this thought because I think too, it was really important for me to recognize in my own journey as a police officer that over time, I was starting to trust people less. And then that trust then became an issue with other police officers. And I wasn't sure who I could turn to to be vulnerable anymore. So even though I had maybe a stronger support system going in, 
now as a police officer, I'm having these experiences where my trust is being shattered because people are lying to me, to my face. They're trying to harm me, whatever the case is. And now I'm not trusting people as much. And that also comes into my world with my relationships too, with other people that I should be trusting, which are police officers. So I'm not stepping forward anymore. And I'm not like you saying, no, I'm not okay. I don't understand what I'm going through right now, but I can tell you I'm not okay. Every time I was asked that, I always says, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, let's bring out the mask. Let's be the funny guy or, or distract or whatever the case is. Take the spotlight off of me because I don't want the world to see me in this pain right now. And that, that is something that we need to remember in the journey is that in vulnerability in this process is the key to being able to work with your trauma and to not run from it or to hide from it. And before we go even further, I'm just going to bring up this last point here too. You talked a lot about the shame and the guilt and almost this concept of, you know, not, not wanting to talk about your emotions too, because maybe this perception of being perceived as being weak or, or not the guy that everyone expects you to be. Uh, and it's almost like a fear too, at the same time where it holds us back from wanting to step forward and talk about what we're experiencing in that moment, the pain, maybe there's a layer of being accepted. Are you going to be accepted if you step forward and say, Hey, this is what I'm going through right now. So, so, so complex, right? And then what do we do as people, you talked about it. One of the harder things you went through, you now all of a sudden go, this is too much for me. I can't talk about it right now. I'm going to go to the gym and burn this off. So the gym is a prime example too. And I've learned this over time that the gym can help to a degree to kind of lessen some of those emotions and some of that burnout and kind of shift the dopamine that's happening in the body and and just the challenges overall, right, in that moment. But overall, it's not a good coping style or choice in that moment because all you're doing really is suppressing you're saying i have this big chest that's full of all of this junk and what am i going to do i'm not going to talk about it i'm going to go work out and try to tire myself out and work through the anger or the fear or whatever the case is and then you go home and then you, you see your wife and now you're just spent you're tired you've worked out you went through all of this emotional emotional challenging event and now she's like who are you do you agree with that are we on the same page yeah, you said a bunch of things in there I'd, I'd really agree with. I mean, the first thing you were touching on there was about trusting people less. So you start looking at policing. I mean, Dr. Gil Martin talks about that in emotional survival. It's essentially, it's your increase in cynicism. You go to work and people lie to you all day. And it's it pisses you off. I hate being lied to. If you're lying to me when I pull you over, you are more likely to get a ticket. Why? Because I hate being lied to. And I'd way rather you just say, sorry, I, yeah, I was probably going too fast. I shouldn't have done that. Like you're more likely to get a break because that's reasonable. Everyone hates being lied to. Um, there's been some studies. There was one study I wrote about when I was doing some research for school and they could pre predict with a 90% accuracy, what portion of your essentially like RFT or of your training you were in as a new police officer. So within those first few years and the way they could predict it was your level of cynicism. It was like your views that everything's bullshit. Everyone's an asshole. Like it's how much that changed. Cause we show up often. A lot of cops get hired because they want to help people because they come from, you know, a positive background and it's, oh, I can't wait to go help people. 
And then you show up into this world where everyone's lying to you and, and there's just a lot of hardship. And then I think you also hit the nail on the head of what happens when you bring that home? What happens when everyone lies to you all day and then you come home and your spouse isn't lying to you, but you treat them like they are? That's really hard. And that's something we need to be aware of. And I've heard guys talk about different variations of how they have a ritual. Like one guy told me about like he takes off his watch and puts on a different watch. Whatever it is, it's some version of reminding yourself like, I've left, no offense, but I've left the bad world or the world where the bad things happen. And I'm going home to the safe world. And if you're going to interrogate your wife or your spouse or your kids the way you do with someone at work who's, you know, committing crime, like that's not going to be a very happy, healthy home for your, your family. So we need to find a way to manage that part of the job. And it ultimately comes from understanding. Dr. Gil Martin has a great way that he explains it in his book. Um, he uses the, a word association where he, he asks, what do you think of the term scout leader? For normal people, you know what they think? Outdoorsy, loves children, helpful, volunteer. You know what cops all say? Pedophile. Because everyone that they've dealt with has been a pedophile. But guess what? Most of them aren't. And it's the same thing for almost anything. Like, that's what we do. We deal with this, the bad in society. And it starts to change how you see it. You think that everyone has an angle and they're out to get you. And it essentially, it can make us jaded. It doesn't need to. You can choose to find that self-awareness and to understand these topics and to still not let that impact your home life as much. But it is likely going to change us. Um, you also touched on like when people ask us, are you okay? And we often just lie and say we aren't. Um, I had one day, I remember being asked that like, Hey, are you okay? And it was when I was off or no short, sorry, just before I went off on stress leave. And, uh, I remember saying like, no, I'm not doing well right now. And I think what I was perceiving was my anger and my rage because I would yell over nothing. And I remember someone didn't put on a turn signal in front of me. And I screamed at them for probably a minute to the point that my throat really hurt. Like that's not normal. And that wasn't because of the turn signal. People don't put their turn signal on all day. And I don't yell like that anymore. But I just had an overwhelming amount of like negative emotion and just rage. And you're just taking it out on those who are around. And I think at times we do that to our loved ones. We don't really realize it. But our kid does something and we scream at them. And it's not really because they threw them their water or whatever the thing was. It's that we're still processing our own feelings and we're essentially just taking it out on those around us. But in the example I'm, I'm listing, like the next day I had my first, what I call a panic attack, where like my, just the stress within me was overwhelming. And I was in a public restaurant and I ultimately just like a, a broke down in tears and I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't even talk. Like it was just overwhelming. And really, I think what that is, is your system is just overloaded with stress or at least one part of it. You're overloaded with stress and you're just, your body's trying to offload some of that stress and crying is a way to do that. So your body's just trying to get some of this out. And it just, it was overwhelming. I eventually had to run out of the restaurant, like some crowded Denny's in downtown Vancouver at noon on a Saturday. Like there's people everywhere and you can't even talk. Like I was trying to say what's happening to me and what's wrong with me. Um, but I couldn't even say what eventually I just ran out of there and I, I ran into my car and I sat there and I started doing effectively like combat breathing, tactical breathing, whatever you want to call it. 
but I regained some control of my physiology through my breathing. And that wasn't even intentional. That was just, I didn't know what to do. And obviously through work, we, we learn a bit about breathing and self-regulation. And that did help me to regain control. But I think that's an example where as you start really feeling it, like for whatever reason, I felt comfortable actually saying, no, I'm not doing very well. But I had, a, I had trouble articulating what that really meant. And for me, I think it was just a recognition or myself recognizing that like I was carrying a lot of stress. I was carrying a lot of anger and it was, it was impacting me. You talk about the book of killing, which was really interesting. I heard about this early on in my career. I never read it. I don't even know if I bought it, but I do know it existed. And I'm glad you're talking about it because it's a really important part, I think, for police officers to kind of prepare themselves for this event of you are most likely are going to get thrust into a situation where you're going to have to use or at least consider using lethal force. Now, anytime you can gain more knowledge into something that you have no knowledge base over is a win. So for many people, grabbing this book, I think, would be extremely valuable for you. Not out of a place of paranoia, but just out of a place of understanding kind of how killing happens and and what happens to the people that are involved in those situations. And it sounds like the book does a great job of kind of going over all of that, Mark. Um, the other parts I want to talk about too, is obviously we're going to come back to this a little bit later, your book and your blog, which I think is phenomenal. And I think the reason why it's phenomenal for me is we need this so much. So I'm doing it here on the podcast. We need a book so that people can go out and they can buy a book on day one of becoming a police officer that lays the roadmap out for them of what can PTSD look like? How is it going to possibly happen to them? So again, you can arm yourself with the information, much like on the book of killing. So I'm glad you're doing these things, but I do want to come back to them in a little bit. And I do want to talk about them in a little bit more of a a deeper sense. One of the aspects too, obviously with policing, something that you touched on earlier was there's a cost to service. There is a cost to service life. Wherever you go in this journey, whatever your decisions are, whether it be good, bad, or indifferent, you becoming a first responder, there is going to be a cost of you just putting on the uniform and heading out and doing your first shift. And you really have to pay attention to the person that you are when your journey begins and how now your journey is changing you over time. And one of the things that I love how you kind of reflect on is that you now start to paint a picture of, and this is so common in PTSD, is the anger issues that are now present the negativity, the cynicism, the panic attacks, the anxiety, you're not being able to speak at times and get stuff out because you literally are going through such a broad range of emotional turmoil and being overwhelmed. You can't talk like you cannot actually look internally and say, I'm experiencing sadness. When somebody asks you, how are you? How are you? Oh, okay, I'm experiencing sadness. Okay, well, we can deal with that. When someone asks you when you have PTSD, And they say, how are you? And you look inside, there's this box of like emotions everywhere. And you're like, I don't even know where to begin. I have all of this going on. I have the anger, the irritability, the hypervigilance, the cynicism. I'm not sleeping well. My my nutrition's garbage. I'm not doing well in my personal life. I'm suffering at work. I'm going through depression. I'm going through anxiety. I might be having suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation. You may be battling addiction and addiction has many forms as well. So when some, someone says to you, how are you doing? Sometimes that conversation can go to boom. 
Here's all of the issues that I'm experiencing right now in this moment. So I'm glad that you took the opportunity to reflect on kind of how this now was impacting you and kind of some of the things that you were seeing about the person now that you are becoming. Yeah. So I want to touch on one thing you just said about uh, basically with PTSD and how you you can't talk. So there's a book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Have you read that book yet or have you had a chance to check it out? Yes, I currently am reading it and phenomenal book. Yeah, it changed how I perceive trauma, like, yeah, revolutionized it for me. Um, And so I don't know how far through you are, but he uh, ends up talking about different parts of your brain and how, like what happens or how they work. So he talks about one area called uh, Broca's area, which is responsible for language. And so it, like, they know a bit about it. It goes offline with, uh, with stroke patients and they lose some of their ability for, for language because of that. And that's one thing when we're experiencing trauma or as the PTSD is happening, you, you can't actually put words to what your experience is. And that's really hard. So that's, I think, my own guess. So I don't have science to back this up, but I think that's actually why journaling is so effective is you're, you're reengaging the part that can give words to something that you feel like you can't. Um, there's also, uh, well, there's a guy named Dan, Daniel Sundahl. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, so he's an artist. He's a first responder out of Alberta who, uh, has transitioned into doing artwork around trauma and first responders. And what he can do is he can actually capture, um, the kind of experiences that we have, the kind of things with trauma and emotional pain in his artwork. So Daniel, he's awesome. He's actually the guy I hired to uh, create the cover for my book um, to try and capture some of that just to like, it's the things where you see some of his images and he, he'll, it's amazing. The artwork he does where, you know, it's the back of an ambulance and there's an EHS worker there holding a doll. And there's like a little picture of an angel of a, a young child who's passed away. And it's, it's capturing in an image like the emotion that we we see and that we often struggle to tell people about like even just thinking of some of those images it it makes me feel a little bit emotional just from the power of the emotion and really what what he does through that artwork is people can connect to it so now it's hey I can't I can't express it but I can recognize it when I see it in an image and there's another part of our brain that comes online when we we first see an incident so that's uh, Broman's 19, which again, I got from uh, Vanderkolk. It's not, I don't know this stuff well enough. I just know it well enough to repeat what I hear very smart people say. But basically that's what comes online when we first experience things. And what's happening with trauma, you're actually re-experiencing that. So when they put you in an MRI, you're not just remembering your trauma. Your brain is actually reliving that trauma. Like, and the, for the example they talk about, this is someone more than a decade after experiencing it and it's still lighting up the part of their brain as though it's first happening. And it's because they're not just remembering it. They are reliving it. They are refeeling it. And that's how I used to describe for me, I had a lot of nightmares where I would always need to shoot people and I would often wake up in a panic, uh, reliving the same feeling of how badly I didn't want to shoot someone. Like it, it brought me a level of emotional pain. And I think it was my brain trying to process my experience and trying to prepare me for future incidents. And through reading books like On Killing and On Combat and some of the other ones on these topics, 
it helped me to understand it and to make peace with it, that it's not my decision. I've decided that I want to live in a safe society and that comes with a cost. And there are people in Iraq and Afghanistan and a lot of places that wish they had what we have in our society. And that cost is that people need to provide that security. And 99.9 whatever percent of the time, policing is nonviolent. We show up and we de-escalate all kinds of things. I've been to hundreds of high-risk, you know, gun calls, shooting calls with the emergency response team. And almost all of them, we can safely negotiate and resolve and, and, you know, get someone to surrender without having to seriously hurt or injure them. But there are times that we have to use force and even lethal force. But I'm not going to carry that burden for someone anymore. And that's something I really had to learn. You know, our whole concept is like subject behavior, officer response. They make the determination of the outcome based on whatever factors. And, you know, there are, you know, like psychopaths. There are people who do murder. Like there are gangsters. There are hitmen. I get most of society doesn't know that and interact with that, but they exist. And there are school shooters. Like, so, you know, to get into policing, you need to be ready to actually confront some of that evil. And it really helped me once I made that realization that I don't determine the outcome they do. And I'm thankful to live in the safe society that we do. And I'm willing to bear the potential cost. Like some of that cost is real physical pain. Like there are officers who die from trying to save, you know, keep their community safe. And that's heroic. And that's like the sacrifice they made. They paid the ultimate price. And there are many who also pay it in a psychological sense that deal with psychological trauma from these type of incidents. And when you sign up, you are, you know, it's courage, it's vulnerability. You're being vulnerable in, in both senses, physically and psychologically. And it's courage to go and take those on. But it's also super important. Like our, our friends, our families, our loved ones all depend on that. And without anyone willing to take that on, then, you know, some of those people who want to commit bad things in the world can just do it. So that, that really helped me. It just took a burden off of me where it's not, it's not my burden to bear. And I think for a long time, I struggled with that. And uh, it's an important change in mindset. Just finishing off some notes here again, you covered some amazing talking points. And I think too, even as I reflect back onto my own journey, when I hit a point where I couldn't speak anymore about my PTSD, and this is something that I learned about down the road, I didn't understand it in the moment. And I have to agree with you, there's a part of the brain that literally once you get so sick with PTSD, it just shuts off, you no longer can speak. And that's not a good place to be. Because now you can't get that out. And for me, and this is one of the terms that I heard many, many times over through talking to so many different people, is you lose your ability to have a voice. You become voiceless now in your struggle. And that is a very, very harmful place to be. So I'm glad you touched on that. Uh, and again, this is definitely touched on in a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Definitely grab it. Definitely give it a read. It is worthwhile. One of the other things, too, that you talk about, too, is, and it's really important to talk about this because I think in my own journey, I was asked many times, Nate, do you experience flashbacks? And I never really knew what a flashback was, right? I, I thought that Hollywood, which depicts a flashback as being a very vivid, vivid image that comes into your head and it kind of washes out what's happening in front of you. I thought that's what a flashback was. What a flashback is, is what you explained perfectly. It's a memory 
that's stored in the in the mind but what happens with that memory is a lot of times it triggers the body to go back to that same place and re-experience the same emotions that were going on during that event so you now actually become detached from reality you could be at home washing your dishes and go through a flashback you may not see something but the memory happens and now all of a sudden all of your senses are kicked up and you're into fight or flight with no stimulus around you and the body's re-experiencing all of these harmful emotions and it's really disturbing especially when you start to recover from ptsd because you get rocked with flashbacks all the time they happen daily and it's not until you can get to a place where your healing journey is maybe a little bit further down the road where you actually start to become free of the constant flashbacks now i too much like you probably still get them f- not not often but they do happen they probably happen more now not when i'm awake but when i'm asleep i'll have a dream and then the body will go back to that place right so i'll wake up sometimes being very rigid and very tired when i wake up because the muscles have been locked all night long right and that's also a very common symptom too and there's ways to work around that meditation uh making sure that you're you know having the proper sleep hygiene routine so that you're letting the body know that it's going into rest and it's safe and it doesn't have to have a nightmare so it's very tricky but you can get around that stuff but really good that you brought that stuff up as well. And some of the stuff I wanted to talk about too is the flashbacks. Now for you, you talk about your story and how things are now changing uh, for you. What were some of the the unhealthy coping strategies that you were using prior to getting better? Are you willing to talk about some of the things that you may have been thinking you could use in order to try and treat some of those that difficult phase in your life? Yeah, I, I think the biggest one is alcohol. And I think alcohol has been a historical coping mechanism within the policing profession. I think it's why we used to have a lot of the getting together after shift and having a beer. I think that's where that likely developed, which, you know, organizational culture basically says how we do things around here. That comes from Edgar Schein, who is, you know, one of the top researchers on this topic. And he says, really what that is, it's the senior people teaching to the junior people a way of dealing with internal and external problems in a way that has worked well enough to be passed on. So I think that's what alcohol has historically been within policing. The problem is by the works well enough is effectively, it makes you feel better in the moment. Like it decreases your your stress or anxiety or whatnot, makes you feel better in that moment. But I would describe it more as like a negative feedback loop that is making it worse in the long run. So it's going to negatively impact your sleep. Often it's going to negatively impact your life, your relationships, you know, certainly as it progresses, like there's a big difference between I had a beer with my squad after work today versus I got real drunk by myself at home at 9am. That's not, that's not at all the same thing. And I think sometimes we try and paint that second one as though it's the same as having a beer with the guys after work, having a beer with the guys after work, like that's team bonding. That's really what that is. And if alcohol is a part of that, great. That's that's a positive thing for us. But for me, what it progressed to was getting drunk every night because I'm afraid to go sleep. And I didn't recognize what it was, but I felt an anxiety around what I knew was going to come. And I didn't understand that that alcohol was actually going to make my sleep worse. And I remember when I learned that, I actually yelled alone by myself in my kitchen. Why the fuck don't they teach us this? 
Why did I have to learn this the hard way? Why did I spend years suffering? And then all of a sudden you start reading books and academic journals and talking to your psychologist about it. And then you find out, oh, that's been making it worse. Like my method of coping is actually hurting me in the long run, but it feels better in the moment. And I had to quit drinking. So this was late April, uh, probably 2015, maybe 2016 was when I was off. Um, and I remember one week I drank basically two 26ers of rum. Rum and Coke was my favorite drink. So like 50 ounces of rum in a week for someone who's effectively like a non-drinker. Like I haven't had a drink in, I don't know, a week, couple weeks easily. Like I couldn't tell you the last time I had a drink. So to have 50 drinks in a week is not normal for me. And it was really negatively impacting me. And I, I was doing a lot of journaling, sort of. Basically, one of my good friends had said, send me an email, like write out your thoughts and feelings and tell me about them in an email. He's like, I don't even care if you send the email, you could delete it, you could burn it, doesn't matter. So I started journaling and sending these emails back and forth with him describing my experience. And this was around when that was happening. So still to this day, I have about 40 pages worth of this journaling of me describing what it's like to have the nightmares, to have panic attacks and all the stuff that was going on in my world, all the stuff that I never wanted anyone to know. I didn't write it down because I thought I'd ever share it. But then here I am years later with this great information of what it's like to actually go through these things. And I don't actually feel stigma about it anymore. So my plan is to share it. And in many of my chapters of the book, I actually share portions of what I was writing to show what it's like in that moment. But anyways, I, I, in rereading them, I have portions where I describe uh, needing to quit drinking, how hard it was. Like for me, um, I remember waking up one morning and thinking like, oh, I need to quit drinking. And I literally just went like, I can't. And then I had to just change my time horizon. Instead of I'm not drinking forever, I went, can you not drink today? And I actually said, like, I don't think I can. And that sucks to say, like, especially here now, that's, that's really should not be a very big thing, but it certainly was for me then. And then I'd reduce my time frame to, can I go an hour without drinking? And it was 9am on like a Tuesday. And I'm like, yeah, I can go an hour. Cause I knew that my drinking got worse at night with my issues around sleep. And then it's like, well, go one hour and then reevaluate. And eventually that took me the whole day. And then I wrote on my little whiteboard on my fridge. I didn't drink today. I, I won't drink tomorrow. That turned into setting a goal for the week. Once I hit the start of May, I wanted to go the month without drinking. And that was too long. That was too big of a goal. That was too intimidating. So I set a goal for 10 days. I wrote them out on my board. And once I got that done, I set a goal for the rest of the month. And there was a, a level of social accountability. I told the people I was closest with. And two of them actually asked if they could join me. So uh, one was a friend on my watch who was awesome, super supportive. Uh, and then another one was my mom. And she said, yeah, I won't drink either. And then it gives, it basically gives you permission to like talk to someone about it with them instead of like talking down to them kind of thing. So since then, I've had other friends who went through problems with alcohol and I've done the same thing. Like, hey, you know what? If you're interested to stop drinking, like I'll do it with you, but you're not telling them they need to. It's an offer of support and accountability to do it together, but it's not a, hey, do this, because that's not going to be well received, right? So anyways, it was important for me, and my sleep got better, and I wrote about it as I was journaling. I'd, I'd say things like, hey, it's a, you know, 
second night without drinking and I haven't slept better, like best sleeps I've had in months. So it helped me to learn like what, when you're talking about PTSD, there's a lot that you can't control, but there's a little bit that you can. And that for me was power when I went from feeling like a victim to what's happening to me, to being able to regain some of the control in my life that I then would describe as like the opposite of a negative feedback loop. It's like a flywheel where you're now building little bits of positivity. Now you slept better. And as you start learning about sleep science, like your sleep is what helps you to remember things. Like if your sleep's interrupted or disturbed, you won't remember things as well, the things you need to remember. But sleep also helps you forget. And for much of our trauma and the emotional pain, we need to forget a bunch of this. So right after it happens, you're going to have a lot of vivid memories of that incident. But here I am many years later after much of my trauma, and I've forgotten most of the details, which is really healthy for me to be able to let go of some of those. And I think we do a disservice, not only to cops, but all first responders and all everyone who's doing shift work. Why don't we teach you about it? Because I knew almost nothing about sleep. And then as I started learning it, like as I started understanding I was having problems, I started researching and finding some experts. And then as I read their stuff, I went, this is where I can take back a little bit of control. I can understand my sleep hygiene. I can understand my actions. And those will give me back um, some of my, yeah, just some of my control within my life. This is going to reach so many people today. This is going to not only reach them, but I'm sure so many people are going to be able to pull out the gems of your story and apply them to your own, sorry, to their own lives, Mark. So phenomenal the way you approach this. And for anyone that's not attached to Mark or not uh, like aware of what he's doing on his journey, uh, he's getting to a point where he is writing a book and it will be coming out soon. We'll talk about that in finer detail too here. But having this conversation with Mark paints a picture as to where Mark's level of experience is with PTSD and his understanding. And it's very deep. I don't come a lot uh, across a lot of people, Mark, that really truly get PTSD to the depth that you get it. And I mean, even as you talk, like I'm an, I'm kind of an old dog on this topic now, kind of learning a few things from you. So I actually really appreciate you being here for one today. And I just have to echo that, like, this is going to be a phenomenal podcast and there are going to be people that listen to this and they are going to be stepping away from it going, okay, I need to do a little bit of work on myself, (laughs) unfortunately. Right. But that's okay. That's how the journey starts. Now, the important thing I think I want to dive back to first is you had this moment in your kitchen where you literally scream out, why the fuck don't they teach us this stuff? So anytime I've had any conversation now with a police officer that has any amount of service, when I talk to them about post-traumatic stress, they just go, yeah, no, I understand it. Well, why are we not teaching our young ones, the ones that are coming into the service, this is what you have to look out for. It's such a shame. And again, I had to learn the hard way. You did too. I'm glad we were able to come out of it because some people actually don't come out of PTSD. They stay stuck in the addiction or they stay stuck in the PTSD itself. So for you and I to come out of it the other end, stronger, healthier, happier, it shows kind of who we really are, right? When you boil it down. And it's not to say that the people that get stuck in it are lesser human beings. They're still just stuck in the processing the trauma for whatever reason, they're not getting the supports they need in order to get through that. And that was one 
one of the very fundamental things for me that helped me was the support system. Because when you fall apart, you can't get put back together on your own. You need the support of people around you. So to hear the story of how you're doing it is phenomenal. Now, hey Nathan, sorry to interrupt you, but can I ask you a question? Have you read uh, Romeo Dallaire's book, Waiting for First Light? No. No? So basically, Romeo Dallaire, he was a Canadian general for Rwanda, wrote a book called To Shake Hands with the Devil, uh, all about the just massive... Massive trauma in Rwanda comes back and eventually writes a book called waiting for first light. And he has severe PTSD and he describes how he waited like years to get help. And it's basically like you, you broke your leg and then you walked around on a broken leg for five years. And then you went to the surgeon and they went like, wow, it's going to be so much harder to fix this now. And you also were basically mentioning like, why don't we teach this in training 20 years from now? We're going to teach a ton of this stuff in training. Like, from an organizational perspective, it's in the organization's best interest to prepare you for what you're actually going to face so that you can have a healthy, long career and contribute and so that you're ready for it and you show up for work healthy and prepared and not injured and jaded and one day away from stress leave. So like we will eventually teach you about sleep, whether you're a cop, a nurse, a firefighter or anything else, and it's going to help you to better manage it. Just like we'll teach you about trauma how to recognize it, how to resolve it. But basically that's the biggest lesson I took from Romeo Dallaire's book. Don't wait to get help. Don't wait till you've walked around for five years on the broken leg and expect they can fix it. Cause you can break your leg incredibly badly and they can still fix it. Like that's the key point is to get help early, get help often. Like every cop, every first responder should already have a psychologist or some sort of therapist counselor that they talk to have built a relationship before they ever come out of training, like that should be ingrained into the organizational culture that you're going to run into a lot of challenging situations and you need to have a really healthy coping mechanism strategy in place before you run into them. We're going to like, even, you know, to get into something like police suicides, which I'm guessing we'll probably talk about at some point, but it's not waiting until someone's at the extreme end for an intervention. It's prevention. That's the best way of dealing with this. And for me, I started writing my book, not because I wanted to write a book, because I couldn't make these changes within our profession myself. So I went, how do I start sharing this information that I know we need so that it's not just one-on-one, -on -one, but you can share it on a larger scale. And it's the kind of stuff, like my audience, my target audience is me in 2007 that I needed. So Nathan, one thing we just touched on recently was, was sleep. And I'd actually love to just dive into that a bit further. It's been something that has been really important to me, again, that I didn't know much about. And there is so much great research out there. So I came across, uh, I did a program called Seal Fit Unbeatable Mind. They had a, a Dr. Kirk Parsley uh, who shared a lot about sleep science. And it really changed how I saw it and how important it is. And from there, I went and found some other great resources. Um, there's another... Uh, Dr. Uh, Matthew Walker writes a book called Why We Sleep, and it revolutionized how I see sleep. So one of the chapters from my book is all about sleep, and it's essentially just a sleep reference or sleep guide uh, explaining a bunch of the concepts. So I'd say pretty much everyone listening to this has heard of circadian rhythm. We're all aware of that. Um, but most of us don't know you actually have a second system that runs. It's just as important. They basically run independently from each other, but they interact with each other to regulate your sleep.
so circadian rhythm is obviously that we're meant to run like we're daytime animals we're not nocturnal um, and we're meant to be sleeping at night but the other one is a, a buildup of sleep pressure so it's called adenosine and uh they interact together so it's it's why if you get off from your night shift at four in the morning you can go to sleep no problem and if you get off from your night shift at 10 a.m even though you've been up longer sometimes it's harder to go to sleep because now your circadian rhythm has kicked in and your uh, your body is naturally saying no it's wake up time there's light out all that kind of stuff's happening so what it is is as you learn a bunch of the science you can change your environment around it so things that helped me were things like understanding caffeine so the half-life of caffeine actually varies from person to person the average is somewhere around six hours so if you take a cup of coffee at midnight it's like you just took half a cup of coffee at 6 a.m when you're trying to go to sleep and obviously a lot of us use caffeine it's, it's our primary stimulant and primary way of staying awake through night shifts and it's just basically learning that hey that stuff's going to stay in your system for a long time and plan to take it a little bit earlier, maybe take a little bit less. So for me, like I get a lot of my caffeine through things like pre-workouts and I'll take it earlier in my shift or earlier in my day. So a lot of times in the day, I like to take that in the morning. And then by the time it comes nighttime, it's worn off. Whereas, you know, I have friends where they take their pre-workout after day shift at 6 p.m. and then they go work out and then they can't sleep for a long time, for most of the night. And I've tried talking a bit about it and it's just learning how to make those little changes. And basically adenosine and caffeine bind to the same, I think the terms neuroreceptors in your brain. It's almost like a parking space. That's my, the way I think of it. So uh, the caffeine will sneak its way in there um, so that you don't feel sleepy. So it's not that you're not tired. You're basically, it's like how um, like an opioid will mask your pain. The pain's still there. You just can't feel it. And it's the same thing with being tired. You are still physically, your body still has whatever going on, but you just can't feel it in the same way. And most of us, I don't think really know about this concept. So it's why I've had times where I get called out and like, you know, you're, you're driving and falling asleep, but then three hours later, I'm still driving, but I'm actually less tired. So it's been really helpful for me to just understand my own sleep hygiene and how to um, how to better manage it. Things like having blackout blinds, darkening the room, making a cool space, um, even how I plan my sleep. Like sometimes I've heard cops or first responders complain about you got to switch from a, a night shift into a day shift like 24 hours later and how brutally hard that is. It is brutally hard. Um, but really for me, that's where you kind of plan it so you don't get quite as much sleep in the first instance. So you're still tired enough to then get back to sleep. And part of that too is change within the bigger picture, the bigger culture. Like our two days and two nights, our pattern is stupid. There's nothing good about it. You, could, you couldn't design a worse pattern for our bodies to need to fully adjust 12 hours every two days and then three and a half days later. It's not four days off. It's three and a half days off at best. Like how many people work a six-hour shift and then call that a day off? I don't think so. Um, but so really we need to look at better options. You know, we need to look at things like, you know, having straight four days and straight four nights or doing a month of days and a month of nights. And there's still a bunch of challenges around that, even things like naps. So under, when you understand kind of the, the, how your sleep cycles work, you can plan your naps to either be in 30 minute cycles or 90 minute cycles, which will work a lot better, um, 
just with your natural biology. If you nap for somewhere in the middle there, you kind of, you're hitting a deep sleep and then you're going to wake up feeling super groggy. So, and, and actually, essentially you're supposed to get about five sleep cycles a day. So if you plan it out to get about 35 a week or as best you can to mitigate the impacts of shift work, that will help you. And naps are one of the ways you can do it. So when I was with Delta police, they actually bought some sleep pods that were designed so that people could sleep at work. So you can go get a 30 minute nap. Now, they were at a different building than the one I worked out of at the time. So I never actually used them. And I remember hearing some of like the newer members say, oh, you know, management just bought that so they can track who's lazy and some of these kind of things. No, they're actually being progressive. They actually want you to go get a nap because you'll be a better employee. You'll be more functional. You'll be more alert. You'll crash less. You know, you'll have less sick days. Like they see the long term and the big picture that is better for us. And I think it's where the profession will get in 20 years. Um, but in the short term, it's kind of perceived like if you're a cop and you sleep it all on your shift, then you're lazy. And, you know, for some reason, I can work for the corporation of Delta as a firefighter and no one has any problem with me sleeping however much I need. But if I'm working for the corporation of Delta as a police officer, then how dare you sleep at all? And in my first five years, I almost never slept on duty. And but the reality of our life, like you have kids and you're up at five or six with your kid, you're up for 24 hours straight, like you're now legally drunk. There are studies that show after 24 hours of being awake, how much this impacts you and your ability to perform. And I've had the days where you're driving home from work and the windows roll down and the radio's cranked up and you're slapping yourself to stay awake and all that kind of stupid stuff. And it's true. And you literally still, you know, wake up because you're driving over the side of the road and we need to change some of it. We need to do what we can to mitigate the problems. And there's just a lot of really good science around sleep. Actually, one more part of that to touch on is even prescription sleep medication, which again, talked to lots of shift workers who use them. This came up at work fairly recently where someone was saying, oh yeah, my doctor told me there's no side effects. And I went, no side effects? You're not actually sleeping. Like, don't get me wrong. I have prescription sleeping medication. I have it for emergencies. If I can't sleep, it's better to get some rest than none. There is a time and a place to use them. And I have used them very infrequently. But if your long-term strategy is to take those regularly for the long-term, you're, you're going to be impacted by it. Because to quote some of the sleep experts that I have followed, it's not actual sleep. They're not like, I actually described them in my book as unconsciousness medication. It's equivalent of being hit in the, in the head with a bat and just being knocked out or getting blackout drunk and you blackout, but your body isn't going through the restorative process that it normally will. You're not getting the good hormones that you need, the growth hormone and the testosterone, and you're not cleaning out the bad hormones. And for me, when I wasn't sleeping, I ended up doing a, um, a traumatic brain injury test, which was a blood test through a natural path. And they found my growth hormone, my testosterone were like a tiny fraction of what they were supposed to be. Whereas things like my cortisol were super high. And part of that's that I wasn't able to sleep. And by changing some of my, the things in my environment, like not, you know, watching TV or playing video games or doing things like that late at night, you're doing things that are trying to help you relax, um, helped me to start to regain a healthier sleep pattern. Sleep is literally like your superpower as a first responder. 
it is so undervalued, so unspoken. We we really need to look at sleep as the one thing that is going to save us. Because I know for me, and even as I reflect on my own journey into my own story of addiction with PTSD, one of the reasons that contributed to the addiction was I was actually looking for something to help me sleep because I'd become a full insomniac at that point. I think I was sleeping maybe like 10 to 15 minutes a night and I would pass out because I was so exhausted, but then I would wake up and my mind was spinning and racing and the body just wasn't at calm. It wasn't at ease. There was no way to fall asleep. And I remember at the time thinking, I can't sustain this for any length of time. And it went on for months, Mark. So as I was like, I need a solution to this. And at the same time, the sleeping medication that I was on actually had just been taken off of the shelves. I can't remember what it was, but it was actually impacting seniors and completely erasing their memories. So it too was causing some massive issues. So they actually pulled it off of the shelf. And my doctor was like, hey, don't use that stuff anymore. I didn't use it a lot, but I used it once in a while. And uh, the discussion about medical cannabis came up and medical cannabis for me helped me. But again, it built into this narrative of now getting into a very slippery slope with you're going through pain and suffering. You're not sleeping well. The medical cannabis is helping, but eventually over time, you're going to need more to get the same impact so that you can continue to sleep. And it just blew up much like your story with alcohol, where all of a sudden now you're down the road and you're looking back at it and you're going, okay, now I have a much different issue. Right. So for me, that was, I mean, a little bit of a side tangent there to what you're talking about, but still very much rooted in sleep. Sleep is one of the most important things. When sleep goes, everything else falls apart. If we can keep sleep together and we're still getting enough of it, and it's that good restorative sleep, I think a lot of our issues are so much more less significant. Yeah, I've heard uh, Matthew Walker, who is probably the best uh, expert that I've ever come across for sleep. And he talks about sleep and mental health basically being like bi-directional. So as your mental health declines, often it negatively impacts your sleep. And as your sleep is negatively impacted, it often negatively impacts your mental health. And within policing specifically, and most first responders, we get thrown into a world where your sleep's going to be messed up. So not only we throw you at some trauma and emotional pain and a bunch of other problems, but then one of your best mechanisms for coping with all this is highly dysregulated. And, you know, it's just, it should be no surprise why that there's a lot of problems that come with it. And that's the value of teaching people about it. Like even things like melatonin, which many of us take, and I've had lots of times I take melatonin, but it doesn't really work. Like it's more of a placebo effect. There's a lot of problems with melatonin when you listen to some of the experts for one the dosing is often way off. Like what they're telling you is often either much more or much less. Melatonin also, the way I've heard it described is it's, it's like if you're at the start of a race, it's like the firing gun that says start, but that it doesn't, it doesn't actually help you to be asleep. Um, so really it often acts more as a placebo effect for people where they think it's helping them and thereby it helps them. Um, even with PTSD, which obviously we've talked a bit about here, like there are studies where um, people get given placebo medication. So you're taking just a sugar pill. It should have no impact, but a significant portion of people will still report improvements because there's a placebo effect that they, they think they're taking something that will help them. And then that they, they therefore report that it has helped them. And that's basically what most of us are getting from melatonin. And I think when I look at things like prescription sleeping meds, I think of it as a tool to help you in, 
an emergency in times of need. But what you want to be doing is changing the behaviors that you can, changing the factors that you can control to regain as much control as you can and to minimize the damage. And ultimately, through things like naps, like we can recover some of that lost sleep. You, I didn't know this. I actually heard a boss, I was probably a couple years into policing, and he's like, oh, yeah, the shift work, it's going to take some years off your life. And I was like, what? Like, I'm going to die younger just because I have to work all these night shifts. He's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, what? Why didn't anyone ever tell me this? But it's true, right? It, it's going to impact you. And that's where, why wouldn't we find ways of dealing with it? And even if you have to work some night shifts, to me, that's where, like, night shifts are fun. I get all that. I, I like some parts of night shifts. It's the last few hours of them that are really tough. And when we can find ways of, you know, in some, every unit's different, but maybe you can have some on-call where you don't have to stay up all night. It's just go if there's a call. Or maybe it's a different pattern where you work a set of nights, like for two weeks or a month, and then you switch over and have normal hours for a while. It's probably a lot more effective to maintain that schedule for a limited duration than it is to alter your body by 12 hours every few days. You know, like, again, these experts say you can only really alter your body by about an hour a day, maybe two. So it's completely unrealistic that we would adapt to that and that we wouldn't have significant impacts from it. I th and I completely agree with you. Sleep is, again, it's it's literally a superpower for us. I think as I reflect back on the people that I, I worked with over the years, because I've, I've also too much like yourself, worked on the nights for many years, and I've worked for so many different supervisors over my time as a Mountie that I've had supervisors, the ones that are like, hey, you have to be on the road until the end of your shift out there looking for, you know, the speeders, whatever it is at, you know, three in the morning till seven in the morning, whatever the case is. And I've also had supervisors to her like, Hey, as long as things are okay and the world's not burning to the ground later on in the evening, take the time that you need to make sure you're getting some form of rest. Like even if you're not sleeping, you're just laying there, you're just letting the body be calm. Your eyes are closed, whatever the case is, there's value in rest. There is immense value in rest. And this is something that you touched on. And I'm even going to segue into if you can't get the proper sleep, make sure that you're getting the rest that you need because rest is equally of value just to lay down and close your eyes and just to rest and to try and engage the mind to slow it down will allow the body to, you know, deal with some of the anxiety or naturally deal with some of the harder things you're going through. So it's definitely like almost a two prong approach where you have to recognize you need rest, you need sleep, that both are very, very important. And Mark, thank you for bringing this up as well, because sleep was actually one of the things I wasn't planning on talking about today. But Again, very important topic. So for you and your journey, obviously there was probably a point where your sleep wasn't so good. When, when did you finally start to recognize that you needed to nudge yourself along in this PTSD journey and reach out and get help or start to explore how do I learn about what I'm going through? How do I bring back some of the, the healthy things that make up me? How do I help, you know, the, the wife that's at home, whatever the case is, or, you know, rebuild those relationships that most likely had been suffering up till that point. What did that look like? What did your healing journey begin, uh, look like? I think it was an evolution, like uh, almost a progression. Um, first off, like we didn't know nearly as much about psychological trauma, PTSD back then. I mean, I got hired in 07. PTSD was only a formal medical diagnosis in the DSM-5 in 1980. So where we are in the year 2022 is dramatically different. 
And obviously I started experiencing symptoms as early as 2009, but I didn't even understand them. So it took me years to just figure out what's going on. And then I had very unrealistic expectations. I made an appointment with a psychologist once I went once and then never went back. Like, and I, I literally just thought I'd be like a, you show up for a surgery and you're better. Um, and I kind of went like, well, that was a waste of my time. Like it takes you three hours by the time you drive there, drive back. And I didn't feel like I got any better. So I never went again. And whereas when I started going later, I had a more realistic outlook of I'm going to be going here for a while. It's going to take some work. Like you're going to have homework where you think about things and try things and make changes. So changing my expectations of what therapy, psychotherapy, those kind of things are, was one important aspect. I think for me personally, I didn't really realize what's happening. So you kind of start to get it. You kind of know it's not normal. Uh, like for me with the nightmares, like you'd wake up just like in a panic, like you're all messed up and it's hard to explain to someone who's not there because you're basically reliving some of the most traumatic moments of your life. And then you don't really understand it. So what I actually started doing was I kept a log of some of these nightmares next to my bed. And it was just my own way of trying to understand what the hell's going on here. And it really helped me because I didn't actually realize until I started doing that, that every time I was reliving needing to shoot someone, and that's the moment when I'd wake up was in the like feeling the pain of how badly I didn't want to, but how realizing you have to. And since then, I've learned that's actually somewhat of a common thing for police officers to experience. I've talked to other cops who've relived variations of traumatic calls and emotional pain. Uh, certainly, I've talked to cops who've relived variations of, of dreams and nightmares of shootings, and I've read about them in books. So it starts to normalize it. And I think that would have been really healthy for me to hear ahead of time. Um, ultimately, I, I think at some point, I just realized, like, this is getting pretty bad, you know, and people around me were saying, like, I'm worried about you. I think that's also a sign like, you know, I'm, I think I'm normally a pretty happy guy and uh, you just, your world starts to change. Your outlook changes, what you say, how you look at things and the people around you start to notice it and start to ask you, Hey, how you doing? Um, so that for me was a bit of a realization. Then I, I talked to somebody who had been diagnosed with PTSD and who re referred me to a psychologist that they had been to see. And, and, we got to be careful because I'm not a psychologist, so it's not my place to diagnose someone. But for example, that I just talked a bit about my reality to them. And they said, hey, I have PTSD. And like what you're describing, you have PTSD too. Now, they're not really able to make that diagnosis, but they're basically just saying same, same. Like you're going through a bunch of this, I'm going through a bunch of this, and it's the same, which they were actually right. Um, how I view it's changed though. Like I was diagnosed with PTSD and it was such a big deal to me. Like it was so devastating. I used to think I could do anything. And then I was all of a sudden like, I'm broken. I can't do anything and I'm worthless. And I wasn't even willing to hear it. Like when I was first told, Hey, you have PTSD. It's like, if you ever say that again, I'm never coming back. Like it was so devastating that my world was going to crumble down. And the way I look at it now is more a psychological injury. Like even going back to Romeo Dallaire, like many of us will have these injuries and some of us choose to just stomp around on them for years and they get worse and our lives get messed up often. And like, you're worried it's going to impact your career, but it's actually by not getting help that it's going to impact your career in the long run. And the nice thing with an injury is you can heal. Like, and Romeo Dallaire talks a lot about like OSI or operational stress injury, as opposed to PTSD. Like, I don't personally think that I have a disorder. 
Um, I was once told I was, I met the clinical diagnosis for it, but now I look at it like I had an injury and I've healed. So part of when I even started to write the book was I spoke as an example of post-traumatic growth at a, a mental health training session, a SISM session within the municipal policing world. And an RCMP psychologist came up to me after and she's like, you had so many great things to say. You really need to find a way to share that with more people. And that was when I was like, oh, I, I guess I'll start trying to share it with some people. <laughs> like, you know, it's something we'd been doing. I'd been doing one-on-one as a peer support member and, you know, in groups with R2MAR training, I'd probably done, I don't know, maybe 30 or so R2MAR training sessions for mental health. And I'd shared my story countless times. So I was really like willing to and comfortable with it. Uh, and that kind of helped change how I saw it. But I guess to get back to your initial question of how that transitioned for me to realizing it, I think it's primarily the people around you or seeing the things in your life of like, oh, that's not normal. And for me that day when I was screaming at cars for not having their signal on and I'm breaking down in tears over nothing and I'm fighting with everyone and I'm just filled with rage and pain, you know? And I mean, like we talk about things like work calls, but it wasn't all work calls. You know, there was a, a suicide in my personal life that really impacted me that I didn't know anything about, but I carried a ton of guilt about it. You know, I was the last person to talk with, with my godfather, Bill. I lived in their basement suite and I was really close with them. And that impacted me. But I, I think often when that stuff impacts you, you don't really see it at first. And then it's just that slow evolution of something's different. Things are different in my world. People are telling me things are different. And then you have to have the courage to actually confront these things and make changes. And it's really fearful. Like it's, it takes courage to confront emotional pain, just like it takes courage to handle physical pain. And that was a hard transition for me. Like asking for help was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it's also one of the best things I've ever done. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's on the people around us to really see things in us. And that was true for me. And then it's on us. It's hard to accept help. Like most of us were, were proud and independent. And especially you get into policing, you're, you're used to solving everyone's problem. I told so many people, you should really talk to someone about that. You should really get some help, like especially on policing calls. And then, but at no point was I willing to look in the mirror of what's going on in my world. I hear I'd go home at night and relive needing to shoot people. And then I'd go back to work you know, haven't barely slept all night and tell people, Hey, you know what? You got a lot going on. You should really talk to someone and really lacked that, uh, the self-awareness at the time. So I think I feel very fortunate that I have a lot of great people in my life who helped me to, to see that. There's no shame with being, uh, unable to step forward to in the moment and be able to share, you know, these are the struggles you're going with. And I think there's two ways that this happens. There are people that are able to be vulnerable early on and they're able to talk about what they're going through and they're able to get the help that they can possibly get. But if you don't capitalize on that moment, I think, and this is from my own experience, you tell yourself that you're going to try to get through it on your own. You're going to bury everything you're going through. You're going to push on like we always do as a Mountie, right? Forge on, never stop. 
you actually will lose the right to be vulnerable and you will actually now push the body into a state where the body now is going to start to show signs and symptoms of you not doing well. It'll actually come out of your control. And it's kind of an interesting thing that happens with humans is eventually over time, we can only run from our problems for so long before we start to show signs of us not doing well. And then others now are drawn to us because they can actually start to see the pain now is manifesting in physical ways. So the body now is showcasing, hey, I don't have the the strength or the courage or the vulnerability right now to talk about what I'm going through and I'm running from some very difficult things and those problems are building and the body says, okay, well, if you're not going to do something, I'm going to do something for you. So now people, and I had the same experience, people were reaching out to me being like, Nate, are you okay? And yeah, I'm okay. Don't worry about it. I'm good. I'm good. And then I turn around and keep going. And it was eventually and not until the point where I finally hit one of my worst panic attacks I've ever had, where I thought to myself, if I don't do something, I'm going to give myself a heart attack as a young man and be dead. And that's, that's how the story ends. So for me, I really embraced vulnerability in that moment. Now that happened much later than my diagnosis. So even though I was diagnosed in 2014 with PTSD, and I had the experience where I was actually very happy to finally recognize I could see the devil I was dancing with, I was actually happy to get that diagnosis. It wasn't until later on when I truly started to embrace, you know, this vulnerability of, okay, now I need to openly talk about this without the shame, without the guilt and get it out. Because that's the only way you can deal with this stuff properly is you get it out. Whether, like you mentioned too, you talked a little bit about the hand, the hand helped you kind of relieve some of that pressure, but also the big part too here, Mark, is for you and just seeing your own journey, the ability to come out now and talk about your experience. I mean, I applaud you fully for where you're at now. So I know if anybody can get through this and get to a point where they're talking about it, they're on the right path forward. Thanks a lot, Nathan. I mean, I also applaud you. You've shared way more of your story. You've done so many episodes and I mean, I've, I've listened the whole way through just uh, really impressed with it's hard. It's hard to bury your soul. It's hard to share the valleys of life like that. Everyone wants to just have this resilience. Like every, it's easy. It's not easy. It's the whole reason it's hard. Right. And you shared a ton of that and people learn from that and people feel, Oh, I'm not alone. Someone went through that too. After every R2MR session I would teach, there'd be a line of people waiting to say that was me. I've been there. I was there when that happened to my husband. I've experienced that. People literally would talk about right up to like having suicide attempts, thoughts of suicide, um, just really big challenges. And they felt that connection of like, oh man, I'm not alone. I think you hit the nail on the head of vulnerability being so important. If you're going to get into policing or really any of these first you know, first responder type professions, you are going to have a level of vulnerability. Like there's a physical danger, there's an emotional danger, and it's just true. And you're better to actually accept it, recognize it, and kind of try and deal with it than to try and hide from it. Because I actually think vulnerability and courage go hand in hand. It takes courage to be vulnerable. It takes courage to know like not only the physical dangers, but hey, I have to go do this NOK of a young child. Like that's going to be a terrible experience with a ton of emotional pain that might impact me. I'm going to be vulnerable to that. But that that's courage. So I think like for me, when I read some Brene Brown, it, it just totally changed how I saw it because now all of a sudden, like if you like love, there's no love without vulnerability. 
I love my family, but something could happen to them and I would be devastated. Like, so there, it takes courage. It's like you develop a relationship, you get married. That person could break your heart tomorrow, but that's, that's vulnerability. It's like giving someone the power to crush you and trusting that they won't. And like, there's an element of fear of weakness just within policing, but I think there's another within being a man. And Brene Brown talks about that where like, that's what shame is for men. Don't be weak. Don't be seen as weak. Can't have feelings. Can't talk about feelings. What's wrong with me? I'm judging myself for feeling this way. Like you're a person first. You're de- you developed to have empathy. And most of us, we get into this job because we have it and because we want to help people. So I think it's learning to understand that and just accept that you're going to be vulnerable with some of these things. And it's, it's really connection that actually helps you to overcome it. Because when you feel alone and you feel like I, the first time I wrote, I actually titled it Thoughts from a Broken Mind. That was how I felt. But then it was one of our mutual friends who sent me a text about their experience, essentially with PTSD and psychological injuries. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my, like I'm not alone. Someone else has been through this before me. They got through it. They're back to work. They're, they're better. They're doing better. Like I can do that too. And that's a, a huge part of what you bring with your podcast is you come talk to people every week and say, hey, here's a version of what I went through. Here's what you can learn from it. Here's, you know, like books and resources and things that help me. And even like I've heard you talk about some of those where I'm like, oh, man, I totally got to go read that book. And like, I still haven't yet, but I will. I actually can't wait to read it because every time I hear you talk about it, I'm like, that sounds just like the body when the body keeps the score. Like, I really need to read that. And it's just like life gets busy and it, it's hard to find time, but I can't wait to do it. Cause again, these are such important topics that you're sharing. And there's, there's kind of a funny part to PTSD too. When you heal, you become over consumed with knowledge, seeking knowledge to fully go deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's definitely points even in my own journey now with my healing, where I'm allowed to set myself up with some time during the day to continue to learn about post-traumatic stress or challenge my own perceptions. But there's also moments too where I have to challenge myself and say, okay, it's time to go now to do the things I need to do, work out, eat, whatever the case is, right? Connect, just live life, right? Because that's a very, very tricky thing too with there's challenges when healing happens right? You now become consumed about this world. So you have to find a balance too. One of the things I loved you talk about was that Brene Brown, literally as you were talking about courage and vulnerability, and I was like Googling Brene Brown and I was like, what's that saying she always says? And it's, yeah, you're right. There is no courage without vulnerability. I think for men, men specifically, and I love that you touched on this because I was raised this way. I was raised as kind of a man that wasn't really taught about emotions or emotional intelligence. And I was born and raised in Northern Alberta. And men just operate differently up there, right? They're more, you know, work hard, play hard, you know, drinking, whatever the case is. They're, they're different. They're redneck, right? It's just a totally different way of life. And for me now to come into policing and then have to go through all of these emotional challenges and now start to figure out, okay, how do I talk about my emotions? It took me time to be able to get to a point where I could learn how to talk about my emotions as a man. So for you to say, like, it's really important for men to figure out your emotions, figure out your emotional intelligence, figure out how you're going to interpret uh, emotions in your body and also learn that it's okay to step out and be weak and cry and share that you're hurting or you're in pain because I truly believe if you're not vulnerable you're going to water seeds of shame and guilt and regret as opposed to nurturing 
those same seeds that could be on the other end of the spectrum, which is the courage in the hope in the growth in the positive things in life that we all want. So you're choosing your way to go about it by either taking action or not taking action. Phenomenal podcast, Mark. Absolutely phenomenal. One thing about you is we can tell for sure that you're definitely on a healing journey. You've stayed in the profession. I completely applaud you for that. You are geared towards not only still serving your community, but giving back to the people that are now coming into the service, uh, the service industry of policing or first responders. You're doing all of the hard, hard work, you're giving back and you're lending a hand to those in need. And that's phenomenal. Now your book, I want to spend some time on your book. What is your book? We kind of understand why now the foundation has been laid of, okay, the book is here. The book is being written because you've amassed this wealth of knowledge now. But tell me about it. When is it coming out? Who is it going to be for? Where do we go to get it? How do we support you on that journey? Go ahead, my friend. Wow. Well, thanks a lot for asking about it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still in the process of writing it. I have effectively finished uh, the first draft, first copy. I'm going through the editing process. I don't have an exact timeline of when it's going to be finished or put out. Um, it just, I'll keep working on it until it's, Till it's good enough till it's ready uh, it's never nothing like anything it's never gonna be perfect um my view in writing this was like this is what i needed to learn as a new cop in 2007 much of it's transferable it's not just for a cop like even i've had a few people read it so far and they're like everyone needs to read this this isn't just about policing there are parts that are police specific there are like when i look at the chapters um, you know, the first chapter is all about stigma, which I've put on my website. So for anyone listening, you can go to markbouchard.ca and you can find that chapter. It's up there right now. Um, the next one's all about police culture, which we touched on slightly, and it's trying to change police culture. It's reducing stigma. And when you look at a lot of uh, important journal articles, uh, organizational reports call for the need to reduce mental health stigma, even like we've touch briefly on the topic like police suicide you look at the 2019 ontario coroner's uh review into nine 2018 police suicides and it says stigma needs to be reduced on an urgent priority basis what what that looks like is us as the senior people the experienced people who've had a bit of been there done that is actually just being real about it being vulnerable sharing the truth of the experience like yeah i went to this thing that was really hard it hurt but I've moved past it. I've got like, that's not still hurting me today. And here's how I did it. So that for me was always my vision of what I wanted to do was just to try and help people with it. So the way I do that is I start out by telling a story in each chapter. Um, I model off of a couple different books that I found really helpful. And that's the format they use. It's because people connect to story. I can give you all kinds of stats. Like I can tell you, for example, you hear the stat of like, 6 million Jews died in the Holocaust. But if I told you a story of one of them, like it'll bring you to tears. But when I tell you that stat, it doesn't hit you on that emotional level. So for me, I, t I share a story at the start of each chapter. And then I transition to lessons learned. And then I share what a bunch of these authors and academics and experts have taught me about it that I wish I'd known, that I wish all of us got to learn in training. And that's not just cops. Like, I have lots of friends who are firefighters, you know, even as a medic, we've cross trained with all kinds of, you know, doctors, medical professionals, EHS, the military, like probably 80%, 90% of this stuff, the emotional pain, the trauma, um, 
is all totally overlapped. So I have a chapter on emotional pain, uh, which is basically telling the story of a next of kin notification and explaining what I've learned since then. And even after writing that, I still, like I took a call of a child sex assault that impacted me, that hit me on an emotional level. And so just understanding these concepts doesn't make you immune from them. But by learning healthy strategies, you don't have to carry it around for 10 years hurting you. You can let it go. I actually heard Dr. Joey Carrington say that once, where she's like, that pain you're carrying around in that bag on your back, you can just let it go and put it down in my office. Like she's like, I don't even have to pick it up. You can just stay there. And she's right, but most of us don't learn it and don't know it. I have another chapter on post-traumatic growth, which you know I share a bunch of my journaling of what I was writing and the lessons that I learned. Because like to me, that's how I now view PTSD. I don't view it as a disorder. Like I was diagnosed with PTSD, but I'm not currently living with PTSD symptoms because I've healed from a psychological injury. There are different terms. Uh, you know, post-traumatic growth is the most common one I've heard, but, um, you know, post-traumatic wisdom is another common term for that. Uh, I also talk about suicide as someone who's lived through the suicide of a loved one. As I said, my godfather, Bill, died from suicide. And it, there were some signs I wish I had seen that, again, we will see in people within policing. But I didn't know to say, hey, Bill, like, how are you doing? Or talk to him about it. And, you know, the day that he died, I came home and his, his wife found him um, after he passed away. And she came out saying like, Mark, I was screaming for you to help. Where were you? Why didn't like, you weren't there. And I carried again, so much guilt about it. And now I've studied a bunch of researchers who've spent their lives studying suicide and it's revolutionized how I see it. Like to me, the way I see it now is, is so much about pain. I start every chapter with a quote. And in that chapter, the quote might mess it up slightly, but it's basically suicide is not a risk to be managed. It's a pain to be understood. And I talk about the story of several people who sur survived suicide attempts. And the lesson to learn is that they didn't actually want to die. You know, one of them, Dakota Meyer, he's a medal of honor winner. Like he's killed many people in battle. He's saved many people like heroically and came back, dealt with alcohol, dealt with battling his demons, as he calls it. <laughs> pulled out a gun, put it to his head, pulled the trigger. And it didn't kill him because someone had unloaded the gun. Here's someone who knows firearms. All he would have had to do is rack that gun. You and I both know that in less than five seconds, you would fully accomplish that if you truly wanted to die. But he didn't, and he's still alive many years later. Just like you know, one of the main suicide survivor and advocates for suicide prevention that I talk about, so a guy named Kevin Hines, who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and amazingly survived because the vast majority of people do not. And that's what he says. He was there. He thought he wanted to die. And in that moment, he jumped over and then had the realization how badly he wanted to live. And really what it was, was an overwhelming amount of pain. And I think we need to share that within policing because there are stats that show how, how much higher our suicide rate is. I was actually just writing a summary for my website the other day that says that our stats are 56% higher compared to, at least in America, compared to those with other professions. And that's a study of like over 4.4 million people and done by some of the top academics. One of them was Dr. John Violanti, who's a 20 plus year cop and well-researched published academic. Um, but we need to start listening to them. You know, he, he wrote a book called Police Suicide Epidemic in Blue. 
Like every cop needs to read this, but we don't. Like I, I, you, I have a, an app that tells you how many copies a book sells. It doesn't sell very much, but, and it's not about the book sales. It's about sharing all that information where he explains that uh, like even things like night shifts, the more night shifts you work, the higher your chance of suicide, irregardless of all the other factors. Again, it goes back to like what we talked about with sleep and your dysregulation of your hormones. But m- most of us don't know that and aren't exposed to it. So really the vision of this book is just to share a lot of that. I'm about halfway through the editing process, but it's I'm not in a rush to get it out because I want to make sure that it's as helpful as it can be. I want to have some people who I respect to look it over, to give me insights. You know, it's people like yourself. I'd love to send you a copy before I put it out so that, hey, how can I make this more helpful for people? How can I make this more helpful for the people who need this kind of information? And then I touch on a few more topics like organizational stress, moral injuries, sleep, even brain science. I technically called it, um, what was the title there? Sorry, it's eluding me for one sec. But um but yeah, basically, I just go through a bunch of how like our brain functions. And it really helped me to, uh, to understand how our brain works. Like the first working title I had for this book was the day my amygdala screamed at me, which is how I described that first incident I was talking with you about where someone pointed a gun at me. My brain just talked to me differently. But when we understand it, we can, we can cope with it. So now what I've done, I learned after writing the book or most of it, that basically no one reads your book. Like, unless you're willing to talk about it and be your own advocate, that uh, 90 plus percent of books sell less than 500 copies ever. So then it became, well, okay, then I'll do these book summaries. Like I've helped create, you know, with the creation of some libraries for police agencies. And um, yeah, so I started just putting book summaries on my website. I've started putting blogs to make it more accessible. Um, I have some plans of how to just make that information more easy for people to access and uh, ultimately just try and build the best resource that I can um, to share some of these lessons that I appreciate you bringing me on here to, to share with your audience. So, you know, thank you for what you're doing. I've loved listening to you for the last many months. I look forward to it every week and I often like get great insights from it. And I think the, the you know, many of the points you've shared are so important. This is a part of how police culture changes. This is a part of how the RCMP changes is by people like you and like me sharing our stories, talking about it. And then someone listens to this and then they go talk to someone and they go read another book and then they change within their sphere of influence. And what you're doing is you're magnifying your impact instead of just helping people one-on-one. So thank you very much for bringing me on for this conversation. I've been excited to chat with you forever and uh, I've really enjoyed it. So thank you. Mark, it was an absolute honor to have you on. Thank you for the kind words. What I want to do and I want to say, though, about what you're doing, obviously, with the blog is when people listen to this episode, please get out. Please start uh, helping Mark by just reading some of the stuff that he's putting together. It is going to help you overall in your life. And I think one of the big things that you touched on that I'll talk about here before we wrap this up was how even though you and I. I'm retired police officer, you're still active. We went through this as first responders, but more specifically police officers. We went through so much stuff that happens in life that we can actually take what we've learned and also give it back, not only to the first responder, but to anyone with any type of 
life experience, really. Like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, suicide, addiction. I mean, these are not first responder only issues. These are human issues. And I think one of the cool things that first started about giving back to the first responder community was just that my experience and where it led me and how someone can take whatever they wanted from it and learn has now shown me that even in season two, as I'm connecting with first responders, these issues are very human issue and they actually transcend beyond the uniform and the badge and all of those beautiful things. So I hope at one point in time, we can openly talk about a lot of these struggles that happen because so many people uh, suffer in silence. And one of the big questions I was asked yesterday while I was doing a podcast for someone else was, you know, what's your one takeaway or your give back for mental health? And it's that we all go through this stuff. Every single one of us. Every single one of us is going to go through the depths of mental health and not feeling well at some point. So why not get out and start talking about your mental health and stop hiding behind it and thinking that if you talk about it, you're going to be judged or you're going to experience shame and guilt and all of these different things. Now, I also had to reflect on that too as I started the podcast because I felt, okay, I'm fearful of now coming forward and talking about all of these different things. But what that has taught me is that amazingly supportive people show up when you're real and you talk about the human experience. And I have had no negative feedback whatsoever, not one person. So what does that go to show you? It shows you that we all understand this topic so well, and we all need to get out and we all need to start having this conversation as much as you can. And there's actually no shame behind talking about your mental health. None. Zero. It's all within. Nathan, I want to jump in and add one thing is that ultimately when you share it with the right people, it's what helps you. Like that connection is power and it's the thing we fear, but it's the thing we need. Like that, your shame, your stigma, it's what's hurting you and it's what's keeping you isolated. And that isolation is actually a really big risk factor. Whereas when you feel the empathy and the connection and it's in the little things, it's literally someone gives you a hug. If someone just listens and feels a bit of the pain with you and uh, Grossman writes it, Pain shared is pain divided. Couldn't be more true. Kevin Hines, that suicide survivor I described, his version of it is uh, pain shared is pain halved. Same thing. They're taking a little piece of it away for you and they don't need to carry it around either. They can let go of that too, but that's what helps us. So it's, it's we're afraid of it, but it's really what you need. Or in my opinion, it's, it's really positive for us. So I know for me, my sharing things, especially through R2MR was so good for me. Like, and yeah. now I don't carry that pain around of it and it helped a bunch of people. My pain then, it had purpose. Yes, I had a lot of pain and suffering and I wouldn't have chosen to experience it at all. But now I wouldn't change it because I'm also using it to help a lot of other people. And just like what you described, I've had a bunch of people reach out to me who aren't cops, who aren't first responders to say that that was me and I can get that. And I've been through part of that, which also, again, is why I'm like, hey, a large part of this isn't about policing. It is, it's meant to be for cops, but there's so much overlap in life. And I feel really fortunate to have got to meet you and got a chance to connect with you. And there's, there's a large portion of us that have this similar journey that we're all trying to make this better. And we only have our sphere of influence, but by working together, I think we start magnifying that impact. And really, I think what we're doing is just accelerating the rate of change. 20 years from now, I think this will all be very different. And let's make it two, not 20. Like, let's talk about it. Let's impact people. Let's you know, let's make this positive change and let's speed it up because 
you know, we need it. And it has, it's having really positive benefits. I couldn't agree more with you, Mark. Uh, then this journey is obviously so unique, but once you come out the other end and you're starting to put yourself back together, you learn just so much. The cure to PTSD and you nailed it, I think is really, it's people, it's connection, it's community. It's support. It's so simple. It's so, so simple. But we alienate ourselves and we shove ourselves and we isolate ourselves back into these corners of pain and suffering and we try to go through it on our own. And that is the absolute wrong way to do it. So having you on this show today to echo that I know is going to register with one person out there that's going through pain and suffering and they're in the earlier stages of PTSD or wherever they're at. But so many people out there are going to take so many nuggets away from this, so many gems, and they're going to be able to apply it to their own lives. And that's why we do it. That's the sole reason. The other aspect to this is I'm not going to let your book only become that stat of only having had sold less than 500 copies. So the people that are here listening to me and starting to jump behind me and start to experience what I'm talking about, we're going to help you as much as you can so that you can get those copies out and you can get the word out so that we can save some people. We didn't even get a chance to really dive deep into addiction or even suicide. But again, this stuff can end someone's life. Yeah, and we, need to, we need to end that. Absolutely. And what you were saying about the, the connection. So Bessel van der Kolk, who's the, the author of that The Body Keeps the Score, he says that the number one protective factor in regards to trauma is actually your support network. And I think it's a part of why I healed as well as I did, because I had such a great support network. My old team literally planned a training day around doing their job in plain clothes, which we wouldn't normally do, just to come meet me for lunch to make sure that they knew that I cared. And it's often the messages we send when we say, hey, how are you? Or thinking about you or whatever. We're saying, I give a shit about you. And that is really powerful because that's the kind of stuff that matters. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I thank you for your support. Like I say, I love what you're doing and I look forward to hearing many more of your podcast going forward so thank you an honor for you to be on the show today even from my own end someone who is well versed in this area this is mark bouchard everyone please tune in listen to this do whatever you can to help mark on the back end mark we are going to wrap it up i kind of feel bad that we're wrapping it up because to be honest with you we could probably go on for like another two hours easily but i've got a shift i got to jump into a few other things even for myself so we're going to pause now uh there's a very good chance i'd love to have you back on later when the book maybe comes out and where you're at then with it and how we can help support you and kind of what you're doing then so uh, much love to you mark thank you for being here thank you for being a guest on season two i can't wait to release this one they're going to be so much uh, amazing things that come from just that alone so thank you Thanks a lot, Nathan. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on Season 2. If you are a first responder with an incredible story into post-traumatic stress, please reach out and connect with myself. Season 2 is based on your story. And if you want to step up to the plate and share your story with the world, I would be more than honored to help you do that. Thank you for your continued support with this project, and thank you for tuning in today.